I'm really happy to have a third star. It's been a, it's been a very positive experience. It's brought us new customers. It's increased our demographic. It's increased people's awareness of it. But you know, we didn't cook for three stars. I mean, we were aware of it. You know, we did what we do, and we did it to the best of our abilities. And I think th- if you do that things tend to fall in place. I think if you really chase something that's superfluous, and by superfluous I mean not immediately concerning the direct happiness of the guests in the dining room, you're going to be waiting a long time. This is Copper and Heat, a podcast exploring the unspoken rules and traditions of the kitchen. I'm Katie Osuna. You're listening to our first season, Be a Girl, all about women in fine dining kitchens. We're going to switch it up a little bit for this episode. You've been hearing from all sorts of cooks and chefs in the last five episodes, and we really wanted to focus on the people that you don't hear from very often, if ever. The people that work outside of the spotlight in the fine dining world. This episode, you're going to hear from one of my personal role models, someone who has very much been in that spotlight throughout his career. He and I talk about some of the big themes that we've been covering throughout this season. The supposed merit-based and hierarchical system that rules fine dining kitchens. There's already like a hierarchy and a tiering system in kitchens. And when you throw something petty into it, like gender, is just, it's shit. It's shit to me. You might be the chef de cuisine, but you're a woman. Like, I don't have to listen to you. What dick did she have to suck to become chef de cuisine? No, she's just a better cook than you. What it's like to be the odd one out as a woman in a male-dominated industry. There's only ever one, I swear to God. There's only ever one in the kitchen. Yeah, you're not like other girls. Yeah, I've gone that a lot. A girl walks into a kitchen. What's going through every guy at cook's head? Let's be completely honest here. What it takes to make it in the kitchen. You need to stand your ground. More so if you're a female, because the guys will try to try to make you out as that sensitive girl. How many times are you called a pussy or something for being upset in the corner, you know? Like, get your shit together, get back on the line, and stop being a little girl about it. People are always like, oh, this new generation of cooks are so soft. Well, I got yelled at, I'm gonna yell at you. Did that work for you? You're like a dead person inside. And just because you went through shit doesn't mean that we can't change that. The demands of restaurant jobs on the lives of cooks. The word balance in the kitchen is, it's like a unicorn. (laughs) I always feel so lucky that I met someone before working in fine dining. Like you wanna, you wanna think that it exists, but you've never really seen one in your life, but you just wanna keep on like believing that it's there, you know? And what it takes to work your way up to the most coveted title in the cooking world. Chef, chef. Cooking at home is great, but I don't think that makes you a chef. My family would always be like, you're not a chef yet? Like you're 
you went, you went to school for it. I'm like, that's not how it works. <laughs> it was just people playing to gender roles. Somehow, like, a woman couldn't be a professional cook. It has to be a man. Now we want to give you the perspective from someone else. Someone who's been in the industry for a while, worked his way up, and is a world-renowned chef. His name is David Kinch. My name is David Kinch, and I'm the chef owner of Manresa Restaurant, which is in Los Gatos, California. Chef Kinch and I sat down in April and had a long conversation about all sorts of things, from the wage disparity between front of house and back of house to the future of fine dining. This episode is edited down to the parts of the conversation that focus on the core themes we talk about in this season. But if you'd like to hear the whole thing, it's up on our website. It was a great conversation. So if you have some time, go check it out. I'm not going to lie. It was really bizarre for me to edit this interview. Three years ago, when my husband Ricardo and I moved to California, I immediately chose Manresa as the restaurant I needed to work in. Chef Kinch is a huge role model of mine. So to be sitting in my living room, listening to an interview that I did with him, it was super wild. Because Chef Kinch is all over the place. Manresa was awarded three Michelin stars the last two years in the 2017 and 2018 guides. It's also a member of the prestigious food and beverage organization Relay and Chateau. Chef Kinch won a James Beard Award and even an Emmy for his role in the PBS series Mind of a Chef. The culinary vision, you know, if you have to put a label on it, you know, I, I described it as contemporary California. Um, I like that. I would like the restaurant to be representative of my own personal vision of what I want the restaurant to be, but also of where it is. You know, we're on the central coast of California in the Santa Cruz Mountains, right by the Pacific Ocean. We work with certain products. We have a certain ethos, and I want the restaurant to reflect that. If you're not familiar with what goes into the food at a place like Manresa, I'll try to explain through one of the signature dishes on the Manresa Tasty menu, a dish called Into the Vegetable Garden. There's one chef de partie in charge of the garden station. When I was at Manresa, I was on that station for four months. Though the base of the dish changes every few months, the garden kit basically stays the same. In that kit, you have a variety of root vegetables that are fermented, pickled, or raw, and then you'll have stems and leaves, somewhere between 10 and 15 microgreens and herbs that come from the Manresa garden. Then there are the flowers, another six to 10 different varieties. Each herb and flower has to be picked through, washed, cleaned, making sure that it's absolutely perfect. The chef de partie on that station is also in charge of trying out different pickle and fermentation projects to preserve different vegetables at the height of the season. Then there's the base. The four months I was on that station, the various roots and vegetables sat on top of several different bases. One was a roasted kabocha squash and a house-made goat cheese. Another was a grilled little gem lettuce with a romaine velouté and beurre blanc sauce. Before my time, there was a cold soba noodle base, a garden custard, a poached egg, and a braised greens tart. At any given point, there can be over 20 different components to the dish, and one person handling it. All for one dish and a meal that contains over 10 courses. To say he's made it as a chef is an understatement. So as I planned out this season, my pie in the sky goal was to interview Chef Kinch. And as I talked more and more to the people that work day to day in a kitchen, the more I knew I needed to get someone with his perspective. 
a business owner and a chef who's worked his way up through what some might call the old school restaurant environment. I started in the front of the house for a little bit when I started working um, much more seriously, but I was enamored with the cooks. I saw the cooks working with fire. They were slightly profane. They were like the crew of a pirate ship. And because I was working in the dining room at that time, I saw the reaction to all this work that they were doing in the kitchen and the pleasure that the guests were receiving. And I loved it. I found something that I really loved to do. And uh, to me, that's half the battle in life is finding something you love to do. You know, it's not being paid that much and, and working really, really hard. That is part of the foundation that needs to be created. You need to experience that. You need to, that is a part of building yourself up as a cook. At that time, I really believe that Nothing else really matters except all that you can learn and all that you can contribute and all that you can suck out of this place that's giving you the opportunity to to learn. And then your short time is finished and you move on. So I like the idea of this, this, this tribe that was creative, working with their hands, um, and how they looked out for each other. You know, their job was to look out for other people, but when it came down to it looked out for each other. Like so many of the cooks I've talked with, Chef Kinch was drawn to the culture of kitchens, the team attitude, the rebelliousness, and the tight-knit community, which can be hard for some people to break into. You know, 50 years ago, it was completely male-dominated. You know, there were exceptions, and there were some tremendous exceptions. But that was just the way it is. It was like, you know, you can ask the same question, how come there weren't male homemakers 50 years ago? You know, gender roles were much more defined. That said, back then, because of the pay, because of the environments, because of, you know, the testosterone and, and the, you know, it was difficult for a woman to break into it. You know, the, the work was physical work and it was very, very demanding. You know, I'm not saying that women can't do that, but, you know, that's what, that's what drew mostly males to it. I mean, I remember being told that I couldn't be hired in a kitchen if I couldn't lift you know, a 50-gallon stockpot onto the stove by myself because that's what I would be doing. There wouldn't be time to find someone to help you do it. And, you know, that is a requirement that not only rules out a lot of women, but rules out a lot of men as well. Do you think that you had certain characteristics that kind of helped you progress? Well, you know, I, I think it was, you know, it's the majority of it is hard work and applying yourself. Uh, you know, I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn different stations. My goal at that time was to go to work at a restaurant, work all the stations. And when I couldn't learn any more than to move on, I wasn't interested in a management level position right away. This is why so many are drawn to the industry as well. It's seen as a meritocracy. You work your ass off and you'll be successful. But is this always the case? Do you think you were uh, afforded opportunities or maybe respect that maybe somebody else like a woman wouldn't have is there like a certain kind of person I don't know I you know it's it's difficult for me to say you know it's it's it, it, it certainly is a very interesting times in our intro in our metier in our industry um, I like to think I you know what we do here at men race is hire by merit you know, we, you know, is this the right person for the job? And a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, the right person being at the right place, especially in such a small establishment as Manresa. You know, a lot of the place people that we've hired are people who came in and staged were on apprentices from culinary schools. And, you know, they applied themselves. They made an impression. And if a position opens up, they just happen to be in the right place at the right time. I'm a big believer in hiring people, you know, solely based on merit. Um, I... 
I look for people who care, who, who give a shit, you know, because that's something you can't teach. You know, I can show people what I want. Uh, but in terms of, you know, gender, persons of color, you know, I, I don't even think about it. You know, it's, it's, you know, for me, we try to put out the best product possible at Manresa. And what I try to do is build a team to make that happen. I think Manresa is a unique situation. I didn't feel like I was. You felt like you were part of the team. Yeah, but you also, you were, you also, the things that we talked about earlier about what expectations are from the cooks and, and, and knowing your role and being a cohesive part of the team, you know, you accomplished that as well. So you were accepted, you know, you were accepted. You weren't accepted because you were a woman who was cool. You were accepted because you were someone, uh, regardless of whether you're male or female, who was doing the job and was a part of the team. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how I view it. I don't. I don't think, wow, she's a great cook and she's doing a great thing. And she's a girl. You know, it's, it, that doesn't happen. Prove you belong, do your job, and you'll be accepted. But what kind of pressures does that put on the cooks outside of the actual pressures of getting the job done? Uh, I've seen, you know, certainly growing up and seeing, seeing women in the kitchen, I, they, they've, I don't want to say overcompensate, but they, they, they're out to prove themselves. But, you know, you know when, you're, when you're in a challenging environment, everybody tries to prove themselves, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I've seen guys come in who have to toughen up as well. This is something I hear a lot in the industry. You have to suck it up, deal with it, toughen up. And a lot of chefs who have worked their way up over the last 40 years are lamenting the quote-unquote good old days, saying that cooks these days are soft. I hear frequently is that like this generation of cooks is really soft or weak or something and that they just don't have to work as hard and therefore you get less creativity, less talent. I mean, what do you... I don't know. You know, a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, the legality of it. You know, labor laws have changed dramatically. Uh, The way people are paid has changed dramatically. Um, I understand that. It makes makes perfect sense to me. Um, In terms of, you know, it places tremendous pressure on, you know, a more traditional fine dining format. How do you kind of cultivate that environment? Because I, I mean, I noticed you don't yell very often. Is that a conscious? Well, that's a recent and new development. I think a lot of it is, you know, based upon personal maturity. You know, you get older. I was, uh, you know, I was stressed out. You know, I was, there's things I wanted to achieve. I was impatient. The environment that I grew up when I was a young cook was, was, was much more physical and much more, uh, loud and meaning in a lot of ways. I never really let it bother me. I, you know, I had a, you know, I've been, you know, I've been kicked. I've been pushed. You know, I've had my tools picked up and thrown in the garbage can by, you know, my immediate supervisor. I've had a lot of things happen. And, uh, you know, I don't take a lot of things personally. Um, um, But I also realized at that time that is not, that's not how I wanted to be. You know, I didn't think it was the best for I saw how some people would react adversely to it. You know, you have to you have to manage by respect. You know what you're trying to do. You're only as good as your team. So you have to do the best you possibly can to take care of them and to motivate them the best possible way. Uh, you know, my rule is that you treat people the way that you want to be treated. You show respect for your peers. You show respect for the product. And you show respect for yourself, you know, by showing up on time and exhibiting a certain sense of responsibility. Um, 
you know, the main race, a kitchen, you know, it's designed where everybody has like a water source and counter space and refrigeration and a place at the stove and, and room to work. And we even have natural light from the sun, you know, with the windows in the kitchen. So they are given the physical environment to succeed. Um, but in terms of the culture itself, I am not a believer in being a lifeguard. I'm not a believer in holding people's hands. I want to show people the way to do things. And then I want them to act like adults and professionals and take personal responsibility for the job that is at hand. And the stakes and the expectations are high. With the third Michelin star, you know, there's not room for a lot of excuses. My, my, the way I see it is, is with the amount of covers we do, we're never really, we're never in that stressed out running around in circles like a lot of kitchens are. I think the cooks are afforded an opportunity to work methodically thoughtful. Um, they can be responsible for every action they make, staying focused to offering the best product possible. Um, plus, I have given them the environment to do it in. The trade-off is, and what my expectations are, is from them, is that it has to be perfect. With expectations like that, there's obviously a lot of pressure for the cooks, but for the chef and owner as well. With those pressures, how do you find a balance between work and your life? Going off of that, from the cook side, how do you kind of, I mean, there's this pressure to be perfect to, like, dedicate, dedicate yourself to it. Um, how do you find a balance, or how do you, like, help your cooks find a balance? Lead by example. Work hard, play hard. You know, we, you know, we have long work days at Manresa, as you know, but, you know, we also have two days off a week. I think we take breaks. I need them myself. Um, I have found through personal experience that I'm much more productive and creative and happier if I find a certain sense of balance. If I have an opportunity to rest and recharge, even if it's for a day, as opposed to this relentless, I'm completely dedicated to my craft, that sort of thing. That's very noble, but it's really hard to sustain in this day and age. They have... They have plenty of opportunity to create balance in their life with that, with their schedules. Uh, the only thing I ask is that they come back recharged and ready to go. You know, uh, you know, I'm a business owner. I hire people. There's a job description. There's expectations on all sides. And if everybody delivers, including myself, then everybody's happy. Um, my door is open. If people want to talk to me about it, but I do not think that it is my place to, to. I think that's that's kind of a a line that should not be crossed between professional and personal. Uh, all I can do is speak for myself and create opportunities for them, but that's that's really all I can do. Like to be, if you were, if you wanted to actually like have a life or a family as as well as doing something like that, is that? You're asking the wrong person. <laughs> you know, I'm, 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 I'm unmarried and I have, I have no kids. You know, my, uh, the history of my relationships, the majority of them has been, uh, you know, they, they've been healthy relationships, but it all came down to deciding, but, you know, you need to decide between the, that job that you do and, 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 and the relationship. You know, now it's only just in the past couple of years that I'm kind of taking a step back taking stock of the situation and and realizing that um, you know finding balance and, and being healthy and being happy 
makes things more creative. And that might be just a process of, you know, me being older. Do you think that's what it takes to become um, kind of top of the game on a three Michelin star level on a, do you have to sacrifice your personal life? Yes. I can't speak for anybody else except for myself. Uh, my goal, you know, I, I'm really happy to have the third star. It's been a, it's been a very positive experience. It's brought us new customers. It's increased our demographic. It's increased people's awareness of it, but you know, we didn't, cook for three stars. I mean, we were aware of it. You know, we did what we do and we did it to the best of our abilities. And I think if you do that, things tend to fall in place. I think if you really chase something that's superfluous, and by superfluous, I mean not immediately concerning the direct happiness of the guests in the dining room, you're going to be waiting a long time. The role of the chef, especially one who's also an owner, is to guide the restaurant's vision. Manresa has a vision, an aesthetic, something that everyone who works there has to buy into in order to provide the guests with a certain experience, the experience that Chef Kinch designs. You know, it's like haute couture. It's like you're stitching stitching a dress, you know, a really complicated and gorgeous dress with amazing material. You know, you can't do it by machine. You know, you have a person who's really good at it and they take their time and they do it correctly. Uh, then again, a $35,000 dress is not for everybody. It's only for a certain amount of people in the world who appreciate the work and the effort in it and understand its beauty. And because of their passion for that sort of thing, they, you know, they, they pursue it. And I think fine dining is a lot like that, too. I mean, you know, Man Race, we feed 50 people. We feed 250 people a week. That's it, you know, and is our restaurant not for everyone? No. Is it expensive? Of course it is. But I like to think that there are people out there who appreciate what we do. And it's not the masses, but it is a certain segment of the population who preaches fine dining. It is so important for restaurant employees to buy into that vision. When it comes to cooks, commitment to the artistic vision set out by the chef is the main draw. You may think that because a tasty menu at somewhere like Manresa is expensive, like that Ocator dress then restaurants are raking in the money, but it is truly a labor of love to work in or own a restaurant like Manresa. I try the best I can in a responsible way, responsible to my partners and responsible to my business model, to give the cooks as much as I possibly can. But, you know, I got 40 employees for 50 people a night. You know, I got a crappy business model to begin with. It's called fine dining. Um, You know, the thing to do is to have six people in the kitchen cut the menu prices in half, do three times the amount of covers, get rid of a tasting menu, do a la carte, boom. There's a responsible business model. You know, uh, I'm sure my partners would be happy if I did that. But we're trying to accomplish something here. You know, we have a vision at the restaurant. So the people who work here, I have to make sure that they buy into the vision. They're not here for some sort of paycheck. You know, I understand, you know, I need a paycheck, too. Same thing. You know, when people don't make a lot of money, it's hard for them to be motivated for more than a short period of time. That's one why the one reason why transitions in kitchens are, are people stay nine months, 12 months, 15 months, and they move on. They move on sometimes for 50 cents more an hour. That's pretty degrading stuff. And, you know, especially what they're devoting their life to. Uh, now, for restaurants, that's a real pain in the ass because... I hate to train people. 
You know, it costs me a lot of money to train. It kind it's a cog in the train that is the restaurant chugging down the tracks. Is you got to stop. You know, you got to have cross training. You're paying two people at the same time. Uh, you have to spend time to train them. If a person who usually stays nine months to twelve months, if they stay for two and a half years, everything changes. You know, you have cohesiveness in the team. The food gets better. It's like that benefits, but people aren't going to stay if they don't feel like they're being compensated correctly. And the, 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 the real poor thing is that you go someplace else, it's the same thing. So that needs to change. Chef Kinch is not alone in facing this challenge. It's definitely a similar situation across the world of fine dining. Chefs and restaurant owners across the industry all seem to be trying to answer the same question. How do we better take care of our people? New funding models, service fees, changes to the tipping system, and so many other experiments are happening across the U.S., something we'd like to dig into more in a future season. But it all comes down to the same thing. How do we keep people motivated? You know, different people are motivated in different ways. There are people that, um, you know, uh, you can't manage everybody with a cookie-cutter type of approach. You have people who can only be motivated if you figuratively grab them by the ears, bang their head against the wall and yell at them. Then you have people who you have to put your arm around their shoulder and you have to whisper in their ear what you need for them to do. And each person is different. People respond differently to different ways. So my job is to find out what motivates people and use uh, and do the best I can to motivate them to fit into this cohesion of the team. If you feel that a woman can't make it in the kitchen because the way that you correct, uh, you know, you use the same method that you would for, you know, the ex-college linebacker, you know, who's been yelled at since he was eight years old, then you're a poor manager. And it's not showing favoritism. It's, you know, it's, it's good managers get the best out of each person, each individual that works, works under them. And that's the art. That's the art of management. Cooking's the easy part. It's, it's motivating and managing people, which is the hardest thing in this industry. That's just my big question is just why aren't there more women and why? I'm going to have to ask the women, you know, I just, you know, people can apply for jobs. People, if people have a fas- passion for opening up a restaurant or working in a restaurant, they can follow it. It's their decision. You know, it's, you know, I, I am not going to go out and look for a woman to fill a job at my restaurant because I think I need more women. I, I just, I'm, I, I'm not going to do it. You know, if I told you I'm going to go out and look for a man to fill this position, there'd be an uproar. Uh, But there wouldn't be an uproar if I said I'm going to go out and find a woman for it. That's why your decision has to be merit-based and someone being in the right place at the right time. We're certainly not afraid to hire anybody of color or any women at any time. And I think our, 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 our history and our track record show that. I mean, it's swung around and we've had, we've had instances where, you know, 75% of the team here at Manresa has been female. That's just the way it was. It's just the way it ebbs and flows. The biorhythms of a team and a kitchen atmosphere and who was around when and what and applying for jobs and being part of the team. Chef Kinch's perspective is really interesting to me. And as I said earlier, the way he runs the kitchen and manages his people 
is one of the main reasons I wanted to work at Manresa. Chef Kinch also grew up in the industry at a time when hard work and merit was seen as the only reason for success, and the put up with it or get out attitude prevailed. And though he's made significant changes to the way he runs his kitchen, I wanted to talk to him more about wider industry issues. Trying to understand why it is the way it is right now and how it's going to change. Because what I what I just kind of don't understand is why there is this discrepancy, why there are only like 7% head chefs that are women. Um, and some of the things that people have been saying is, I mean, yes, everything is very merit-based, but there's also, I think the system is set up in a way that favors guys over girls in some ways. Um, are you speculating? This is what I mean. What, what are the facts? Well, that's speculating. Yes. I mean, where the? I mean, I understand the facts. It's seven percent, but is there really a clearly defined line why that's happening? I don't know. I'm asking. No. Yeah. You know, nor am I defending anything. I'm just, you know. I don't think there is a clear reason why. I think it's really hard to understand why, because there aren't a lot of. There's not a lot of data on like, on something that's qualitative versus quantitative you know a lot of executive you know you think about the um the hospitality industry as a whole hotels resorts and that's a specific training that comes from going to hotel schools culinary programs and hotel schools i think you can look at that and see what the graduate rates are like in terms of male and female and they do have some of the data from, like, culinary schools. Mm-hmm. That means, like, 80% of the graduates men? No, it's 50-50. Is it really? It is. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. like CIA, ICC, they're all right around 50-50. So that's where the discrepancy is. And it's usually as you go up the as you go up the ladder. So about 27% of line cooks are women. Mm-hmm. but then And then 19% of chefs in general, so sous chefs, CDCs. And then 7% are executive <laughs> chefs. So... There's something going on, but like. N- There's a ceiling. Yes, I mean, but. I mean, well, what's that seven percent figure compare with, say, five years ago or ten years ago? Has it increased? Oh yeah. So it's trickling up. It's getting there. Okay. It's just going very, very slowly, right. and it's. So are the impeachment proceedings. <laughs> that is very true. <laughs> You know, so. Yeah. I just wonder, and I think a lot of women in the industry wonder the same thing, is how do we break through that ceiling and make things Role models, maybe? You know, um, celebrating the... And acknowledging... uh, the leaders in the industry that are women, I think you're starting to see a lot of that. I think J- James Beard's going to be a women's fest this year. It's going to be a big one. You can count on it. I think the media has to play its role. I think you're starting to see that too. You're starting to see uh, an emphasis on um, diverse types of cuisine, uh, more female roles. I think they're 
this is a really bad and rash generalization, but guys tend to cook for themselves. They tend to cook competitively. They tend to cook for, um, I don't want to say media attention, but they, they want to cook to increase awareness and they cook for each other and it's comp- competition. How's that for a rationalization? <laughs> the other side of that rationalization is that women who cook and are in positions of owning a restaurant and everything, what I notice is that they tend to cook to nurture. They tend to cook for people and for caring for people. And I'm not saying that guys don't do that, nor am I saying that women are not competitive and, and want to succeed in business. That's not what I'm saying. I think what you are starting to see, what you need to see from the media is instead of celebrating the restaurants that are competitive and award-winning all the time and that sort of thing, but starting to pay attention more to the restaurants that present a side of a particular culture or restaurants that are nurturing and not necessarily a starred restaurant. I think the media is going to play a big role. They have to play a big role in promoting more nurturing restaurants and kind of out of that tunnel visioned, you know, glossy food magazine, trendy restaurant, which I think tends to be run by a lot of guys, you know, flavor of the month sort of thing. I may be wrong in that as well, but that's, that's a very casual speculative observation. Mm-hmm. The public is, is, is the court, you know, it's a, the public will decide, you know, and people vote by going to restaurants. You know, I know there's a lot of talk about, you know, some of these, um, the so-called bad guys, you know, who, who have been outed for like extremely poor behavior and bad behavior, um, at the restaurants talk about, you know, like media boycott, you know, and like not promoting them. You can't write about these restaurants anymore. But, you know, a lot of these guys had like 2,000 employees, including a lot of women and people of color. And, you know, the owners are not going to get shafted. They're all worth millions and millions of dollars. You know, the people who are going to get hurt are, are the people down, you know, in the organization. Um, it's, it's a complicated and it's really, really complex. Um, I think there's room for everybody. I really do. And, you know, it'd be great to see everything based upon merit. Something has to be done. You know, if, if, if we want to create restaurants that can be a defining part of our culture, which is what fine dining is, um, then I think some basic things are going to have to change. In the next episode of Copper and Heat, we get the perspective from some more of the most influential and groundbreaking chefs in the Bay Area. The New York Times and Yerba Buena Center for the Arts hosted a conversation about labor and wage issues, the Me Too movement, and other Bay Area food issues. The panel consisted of Chef Rima Seal, Chef Dominique Crenn, and Chef Tanya Holland, 
in conversation with Kim Severson, a New York Times correspondent who covers food culture in the U.S. and was on the team that won a Pulitzer Prize for reporting on the Me Too stories in the food industry. I was lucky enough to sit in the sound booth during the event and record the whole thing, and I'm super excited to share it with you. Do you have stories from working in the industry? Something you want us to explore more? We'd love to hear from you. Send them to hello at copperandheat.com or call 208-718-2719. Be a Girl, the first season of Copper and Heat is produced by me, Katie Osuna and Ricardo Osuna. A huge thank you to Chef Kinch for taking time out of his busy schedule to sit down with me. A special thanks as well to Rachel Palmer and Clancy Magnuson for editing help. Check out our website, copperandheat.com, for the full interview with Chef Kinch. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps us a ton. Tell your friends. Tell your mom. Tell your cat. We could use all the help spreading the word. Head on over to Twitter or Instagram and find us at Copper and Heat. All the music you hear is produced by us under the name Gamma Gardens. And finally, thanks to all of you for listening. Listening.